welcome to another episode of It Stinks, the Critic Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Rubinow. Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 5, A Little Deb Will Do Ya. And joining me to discuss this episode, a good friend of mine, a very funny gentleman, uh, please welcome comedian Ethan Stanislavski. Hey, how's it going, Brian? Good to see you on a screen. Yeah, good, good to see you too. Yeah, I, I can't actually remember the last time I saw you in person, but pretty sure it was probably at the Pack Theater. Yeah, I think it was actually when I handed you my keytar. I put that was, or you handed you your keytar because I had uh, used it for a, a sketch with my sketch team, and I had bought, but I used it a year before, and I had forgotten to give it to you back for over a year, and then we used it for another sketch, and I'm like, Brian's going to be there, so I'll hand him a keytar. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, my keytar that was actually for uh, for Rock Band Three. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I do miss that game, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's why I didn't exactly need it back because it's like. Yeah, not a lot of uh, plastic instruments taking up room in my house anymore. Yeah, I was like, I would, if it was an urgent matter, you would have gotten it back much sooner. But it was <laughs> not. I, I of the things that are urgent, fake guitars uh, for video games, probably not as high as like non-perishables. But uh, right. Well, I'm glad you were able to get some use out of it. Yeah. Cool. So we're here to discuss The Critic. Uh, I remember you told me you were a big fan of this show. So I adore this show. It is I'm uh, I'm an insane Simpsons nerd. And this is the only show for me that would I would consider topping The Simpsons. It's uh, it's the same staff. So it's kind of a cheat. And it was only on for like a, you know, but it's also like as a film nerd, as someone from New York, it's like, oh, it just covers everything. Yeah. So you watched it when it was uh, originally on in the 90s? Nope. I was, uh, I think, I mean, I, when I first saw the Simpsons episode where Jay Sherman was on, there were definitely some jokes I didn't get because I didn't know there was a show called The Critic. But it was my favorite episode of The Simpsons, the one with Jay Sherman, even before I knew it was a crossover episode. I just love that episode. I love the movie stuff. I think it, I, then I became aware of it in high school, but it wasn't until college uh, someone got the DVDs for it. And then I watched them all and I'm like, holy crap, this is perfect. Um, and I, I sort of Wikipedia the history of it beforehand, but then I finally saw it. I'm like, this is, this is everything I love. And, but it is interesting to watch a show. You're like, how much can they shit on one human being? And it still is funny. Like, yeah, Jay does certainly get shit on a lot in this it's show. It's just the whole show's premise is you're a fat, awful, mean piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> that's the whole premise of that show. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, you are a native New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. That is true. Born and raised. Yeah. So I, I've talked about this with, with um, other guests a little bit on the show, but I, I'd love to get your feeling on it. Just, you know, since New York is so central to this show, how do you feel uh, the critic kind of uh, portrays New York? I think it's interesting because uh, it's also New York in the 90s, which I remember. I feel like what New York was even in the 90s, certainly like compared to when I, before I was born, is very different than it is now. Like I go back now, I don't recognize pretty much anything, but it definitely captures the feel of how that city 
felt in the 90s. I feel like it's very, it reminds me of my childhood in that city. And it, it makes sense because it's from when I was like eight or nine and a child in New York City. Um, the school where Jay sends Bobby is actually the school my high school girlfriend went to for elementary middle school, the United Nations school. So wait, that's a real school. Yeah. Eunice it's United Nations international. I mean, it's not the exact same name, but it's essentially that. It's like, it's like a parody of it. Yeah. It's a, it's it's like, there's no like kids from Chile with whatever the, I forget what those stones are. The the Easter Island kids. Easter Island kids. They don't have the faith. Yeah. That's not real, (laughs) but they are like, it's a very, but the thing that, as someone who grew up, especially in the New York City private school circuit in the '90s, there was uh, there's a the sign on that school is promoting brotherhood and tolerance for those who can afford it. And yeah. I just I saw that I'm like, that is every school. That's everyone I grew up with. That's the that's the premise of yeah. every private school in New York. I mean, I totally got that that was a joke at the expense of private schools because I I also went to a, a private middle and high school um, out here in LA. But like, yeah, I totally didn't know that there's an actual United Nations school. I, yeah. I just watching that. I just figured, okay, I guess the United Nations is in New York. So they're going to joke about that. No, it, it, they have a, they have a school there. My high school girlfriend's mother was a librarian there. Like that's, it's insane. Wow. So it definitely, and it gets like, there's just little, I, I can't really pick one, but like when they have the Pulitzer awards, it's like at Columbia, I'm like, yep, that's fair. And even like, <laughs> The what was considered acceptable in the nineties Woody Allen jokes are very like what I grew up with, like when Woody Allen was like the relevance he had then. And it's uh it's it's different, but it's like cause it, that story was still fresh, so they were shitting on him in a way that now even weirdly seems more appropriate because it's like because it's like that was still on people's minds and then it sort of people forgot about it for like 25 years and then it came <laughs> came back so it's like it weirdly feels more fresh in terms of that yeah because this show is of course pre me too movement but yeah but like yeah everyone still kind of knew woody allen had these weird sexual right. proclivities like he was he was married to soon Yi when this show was right. on this is, and, i don't even oh sorry go on oh yeah and just like yeah i mean the show mocks him but it feels like kind of good-natured ribbing like it doesn't really feel like they're like coming down on him too hard there is there's like moments where you're like it's subtle where it's like soon Yi, i swear i didn't know she was your sister you hear that you're like oh my god that's a fucking cutting blow but it's not presented necessarily as like fuck you but it is like it's that is really incendiary in its own way but it, there are still moments like where it just like he'll do like his physical stick walking off a scene things like that but they all it, it was I don't know. I don't want to talk about Woody Allen too much on the show. About yeah, sure. <laughs> but it is, but just, it just in general, it just felt like my childhood in New York. And it really, uh, and just the, like, there's a joke in the pilot where he gets in a cab and talks to the, the cab driver and he says, read the sign. And then pulls down and says, driver only speaks three words of English. And I'm like, that's perfect. I, it's, it's very, yeah, it definitely felt like my childhood just, and just the vibe of it. And so that's really, it's I, like, you know, like, Seinfeld and the friends, they're all there, but I feel like that show captures like the sass of New York, not necessarily the feel of New York, but just captures like how the sass of that culture better than almost anything I've ever seen. And uh, is that sass like still there today? Like you mentioned New York is like very different. (sighs) I don't know what New York is anymore. Like it's like, I think the, there's less camaraderie, but like the harshness is still there, but there's less like, 
like moments where you're like, that was a fun, I mean, it's different because like living there is very different from visiting there. So like when I go back now, I visit, I'm like, oh, this is fun to visit New York for like a week. But um, when I was living there, like that kind of bullshit is every day and it weighs on you. But now it's like, I go back and like none of the stores or places I grew up with are there anymore. And like the, even in the nice parts of the area, there all the buildings are boarded up because no one can afford rent, even in like the nice parts of the city, even the stores. So like go to the Upper East Side and like, which is normally in the, in that show's universe would be filled with a bunch of whatever. But um, now it's just like half every block, something's boarded up just be, and even in a nice area, just because people can't, the rent is so out of line with what is realistic. Wow. Well, I mean, that sounds like it has something in common with LA because of yeah. course the rent here is completely out of control. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I feel like San Francisco, it's the worst. Like, Oh Yeah. There's and it's it's really but uh, like it's also when I grew up in New York was interesting because even then people were like ah oh, New York's dying compared to what it was like in the 70s so I grew up I like I don't remember like I remember the election where Giuliani won the first time but I don't really remember New York before Giuliani but I remember all the shit Giuliani did as mayor I that was like my childhood like uh, I'm 33 so like like I always say with New York like. When I, I grew up in near Columbia, which is like on the border of the really nice Upper West Side in Harlem. So it's like in the sort of called Morningside Heights. It's this weird zone where it's like um, it's it's sort of like you see the both sides. It's how how both halves live, kind of in a weird way. Um, okay. And like, when I was growing up, there's a playground across the street, and my dad would never let me play in the sand pit there, and I was mad that he wouldn't let me do it. But then I found out as a I got older it was full of crack vials like that was just oh, shit. The, the the playground across the street from me in 1989 and now it's like the nicest cleanest like thing so it's like what's the options either you have the shit or the overdoing it the other way wow yeah Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's a different side, but like, I felt like that world is still there. And even the show captures like that transition as it's happening in sort of weird, subtle ways. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not, I, I've never lived in New York, so yeah, I'm totally clueless about any of that. So that's why, yeah, it's good to get that perspective. Yeah. Um, cool. So how about we get into, uh, this week's episode, a little Deb will do ya. So, so I'll just give the synopsis here. Eleanor forces Margot to attend a debutante ball to which Jay accompanies her. Meanwhile, Jay's show is losing viewers to a children's show called Humphrey the Hippo. <laughs> so, with, his, with his hit single, rap single, Hug the Police. Yes, hug the Police. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the jokes of the critic that is definitely still relevant. Um, a lot of the jokes are very of the time. They're very 90s. But yeah. whenever they joke about like police violence or like the gun culture, yeah. you s- still feel that. Yeah. I actually, I've never like, I've never went to a debutante's ball. My best friends from high school went to one, someone like a friend from college sister. And from w- w- the way she described it, it's like, oh yeah, it's exactly that. Like that kind of ridiculousness. Wow. Um, yeah. It's more just like, teenage girls like melting down and being like insanely competitive over boys, but also just gross, like over the top, like money being spent on bullshit. And it's just like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I've never been to a debutante ball and I still don't, I, I still feel like I don't really understand what the purpose of it is. Like, are these girls like looking for, 
potential future husbands or kind of it's kind of like to show off that you are uh, an adult woman now and boys should be lining up for you um for your attention um uh, in a and it's yeah that's really the premise of it which is disgusting yeah it feels very gross which is even in and like even in 1994 or five, that was a disgusting concept. Um, and so I, I, Margo's like the only voice of reason in that whole show. She's like the only, she's like the, what Adam Scott is and everything. <laughs> she's yeah. the only, like, she's the only human being in that show. And she is, I think having her perspective was, it was good that there was a, a Margot specific episode because. Yeah. I, Though we'll get into this more later, but I feel like, at the end of the episode, I don't feel like Margot wins. No. Like, yeah. So I don't know where the, sh- where like the show uh, sides with, I don't know if they're on Margot's side or not, but I don't, yeah, it's, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. It, it did take a little bit of a turn at the end, but I, I was okay with what it did. It was just like, but yeah. Yeah. It was a little weird. I say I say I love Mar- Margot for being the most grounded person. Yet Franklin's by far my favorite character on the show. Oh, who is, yeah. Who is the least grounded character maybe in in anything? Oh yeah, I've said that on this show. I love Franklin. He's yeah, he's probably my favorite. Yeah, there's also no Jeremy in this episode. That was an interesting thing to watch. Jeremy is nowhere in this episode. Oh yeah, the uh, Australian hunk uh, yeah. Jeremy Hawk. Yeah, totally absent. Because I yeah. guess we're. We focus mostly on just Jay's uh, family, family in this episode. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, I guess to kind of backtrack a little bit to start at the beginning, um, Eleanor, the mother, kind of has to convince Margot to to take part in this debutante ball. Uh, part of that is we get this fun little video from like 1953 of when Eleanor was in a debutante ball with, uh, with an Ethel Rosenberg reference. Yes. <laughs> Julius and Ethel Rosenberg get the chair. Uh, um, and then at the ball, she dances with Bob Fosse, which yeah. was pretty that fun. Was amazing. Uh, what? Yeah. I think it was Audrey Hepburn. What an Oscar. Like, but yeah, the main yeah. The moment that made me laugh was Ethel Rosenberg got the chair. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Some, some pretty dark jokes in this episode. Yeah. Um, include, well, I mean, most of them I think have to do with Eleanor because after the video does nothing to convince Margot, she resorts to threatening to shoot Margot's horse. Yeah. It's, I was like, it's interesting that a show would take that turn. I mean, in general, she didn't kill the horse, so that's good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> but even the threat of that is wow and, and it makes eleanor i think that's the least redeeming eleanor was on the show i mean she's ridiculous in like her upper crusty ways but that was the moment where i'm like oh she's this committed to this and this is actually terrible yeah, yeah like that whole moment or like that scene yeah left me with a very weird fe- feeling because like they're not playing it for laughs they're they're playing it straight pretty much yeah, pretty much and if 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 that's the case, it's just yeah, a really weird, dark direction to go. The only joke in that sequence is when she's counting down. On the count of four. Stop. One. Jay, do something. Two. 
Should I jump on the horse and ride it away? It'd be less cruel to shoot it. Three! Which, but that's like in the middle of the most intense moment. It's like, yeah. it, so it breaks up this very intense moment with a joke, but it does the, you don't even notice the joke really because you're, you're like, oh shit, they're going to shoot a horse. Yeah, and it's like, well, that's yet another joke at the expense of Jade's, Jade's size. Which, yes. By this point, it's only the fifth episode, but we've probably yeah, had a hundred of those yeah, already. Exactly. It's in the intro credits. Like with yeah. it's like literally like three times in the intro yeah. <laughs> credits. Uh but luckily she doesn't shoot the horse. Margot relents and she's like, Yeah, fine, I'll do it. Yeah. Um and that closes act one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh beginning of act two we get sort of the the b plot of this episode and i think this is the first one with like a real a and b story yeah. to it that's a that's a good point there's not there's not really subplots in the other ones that i can think of yeah because the first one it's mostly about like it's there's this is the fifth episode and i and i pretty much know all the others my favorite episode is the misery one and that's like one th- oh. plot throughout um the pilot's amazing that's pretty much one plot throughout um the yeah the one where he insults his mother is is again there's no real b plot there and i think in the in the they they i think they sort of realize oh shit we gotta get some b, b plots going at a certain point make these other characters like so the, yeah so like this episode was a margo heavy episode episode before was an Eleanor heavy episode. So I think they're like doing what every show does. We're like, we have to flesh out our side characters when we've got such a, such a force of nature behind our lead character. So we've got to even it out. Yeah. Well, I, I've definitely noted it uh, before on this podcast, but like, I feel like, you know, plot is not really this show's strong suit. No. Their strong suit is jokes. Oh my God. So yeah. like, so, you know, I'm kind of willing to like, you know, overlook the fact that like, oh, they don't have a lot of B plots. Cause like who, like who cares? cares? Like I know you and I we're both comedians, we're both like writers, so like yeah. maybe we we care about that sort of thing, but in general like doesn't matter at all. You're paying attention, you're you're captivated by the whole thing and it's yeah, I think it's maybe some of the strongest joke writing, just pure joke writing I've ever seen in a comedy show. Oh yeah. So as act 2 begins, yeah, we we get introduced to the B story which is that uh, Jay is losing viewers to something called Humphrey the Hippo, a <laughs> children's show starring a uh, like a person in a green hippo costume that sings and dances and entertains there, children. There was, which is just a completely original idea. There's no parent. Yeah. It's not based on any <laughs> children's show in the 90s at all. Yeah. So ob- obvious ripoff of Barney the Purple Dinosaur, which <laughs> uh, which I don't know, like. I guess people our age would probably remember that, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, Ki- like kids growing up today, probably not. Definitely not. I don't, I have to ask my brother and sister because they're fi- my younger brother and sister are twins. They're five years younger than me. I don't know if they know Barney, even though I was sort of. They, it was probably they probably do. It was probably more their age range, but they probably are like, oh yeah, Barney. That's sort of the thought. But it was a phenomenon at the time. It was. Oh yeah. It like it's hard to explain how like everywhere you went was Barney like everyone saying I love you you love me like it was (laughs) it was like almost like bigger than Sesame Street at its at like at its peak I would say oh yeah it was absolutely huge and like most things that get that popular it was a very popular target for mockery yeah like I'm sure um all the late night shows at the time had Barney jokes and yeah Simpsons had Barney jokes. Pretty much everyone who was making fun of anything had Barney jokes. Oh, yeah. Oh, and and just a quick sidebar. I actually have – so I have a book 
published in 1996 called Cyber Jokes, the funniest stuff up the, from the internet, which is... That's a relic. That's a collector's item. I know. I love it so much. You sell so, that for like $5,000. <laughs> so yes, someone in 1996 thought it would be a good idea to get a bunch of things that were funny on the internet and print them in a physical book. <laughs> <laughs> It's 1996. And, so sure, why not? And uh, one of the and there's just a lot of anti Barney humor in there. It's like a lot of jokes about Barney, a lot of jokes about Windows 95. Yeah, there was definitely uh, someone in a mess- AOL message board I was in made like this weird joke MIDI M I D I file that had them killing Barney as he was singing "I Love You, You Love Me." So oh, was, of course, that's very 90s. I remember one of the very first Flash games I ever played was where you could like kill Barney with like. Is that like Ebaum's World or some some? This that, was no, this was before Ebaum's World. This was just like Newgrounds. Oh, what? I haven't thought about Newgrounds in twenty years. It may have been Newgrounds. It could have been just some random, uh, independent website where. Yeah. Yeah. There's basically you just get a picture of Barney, and then you just click on it, and it eventually just gets bloodier and bloodier. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those were the days when you could <laughs> yeah. murder murder people on the internet and viciously with in like a way that now is like horribly cruel and it's like oh we're thirteen why not yeah <laughs> uh, yeah so um, so Jay is losing viewers to Humphrey the Hippo uh, Duke Phillips is trying to get him to uh of course change his show to kind of get more viewers in and we get in this scene between duke and jay i think one of the the best gags in the entire show where basically duke pokes jay like the pillsbury doughboy pillsbury doughboy and it happens like three or four times right (laughs) don't i find that so demeaning Hey, look, the doughboy and I happen to be ticklish in the same spot, but that doesn't give you the right to... <laughs> yeah, and it gets called back at the end, too. Yeah. Definitely one of the gags I remembered years later, thinking back yeah. on this show. So great. It's And it was so obvious. It's like, how did that, it take five episodes for that <laughs> yeah. to happen? Do people still remember what Ted Turner was, like, at that time? I mean, I definitely had no idea at the at the time, like, who Ted Turner was. But, like, yeah, you know, the billionaire uh, TV executive created CNN, created TBS, TN- the superstation. He's DNT. He was, he was, like, the the 90s Mark Cuban, basically. Like... Mm-hmm. He was the crazy billionaire who like was outspoken and loud. And like, I, rem- I even remember that he was married to Jane Fonda. I weirdly remember when they got divorced, the New York Post headline was Ted, not Fonda Jane. Uh, that was, that, <laughs> I just re- remember seeing that. And I'm like, all right, New York Post. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, but that was another one. Like every late night talk show had like a Ted Turner joke or something like that. Like Conan was doing Ted Turner jokes till like eight years ago. Like not that hmm. he was. So yeah, Ted Turner was like nineties, Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, basically. Yeah. And uh, if you ever watch uh, Gremlins 2, the new batch, there's a character in that movie that is basically a mashup of uh, Ted Turner and Donald Trump. Yeah. Is it, I forget his, his first name, but his last name is Clamp. Um, and yeah, and he is a TV executive and a, and a real estate mogul somehow. So you can be both. You're billionaires. What, what's the difference? Yeah, it's not <laughs> like any rules apply to them of what they can and can't do. 
Uh, but yeah, Gremlins 2, wonderful movie. Yes, very much as yes. Joe Dante is a genius. All right, so back at the Wigglesworth household, which I think in this episode, do we learn that their last name is Wigglesworth? Because I don't well, remember I, it. I, think, I don't know if it's their name or if it's, I think it's Franklin Sherman. I think it's her maiden name. Oh. Because that's like El- Eleanor Wigglesworth is in the intro. Oh, so that's right. I think right. that's her maiden name. It's still like, it's still Franklin Sherman. Also, their names are Franklin and Eleanor, which is like so obvious that everyone's like, had, but everyone always misses that their names are Franklin and Eleanor. Yeah. And they, they basically kind of look like yeah. Franklin and El- Eleanor Roosevelt. And they kind of sound like them too. Like. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have that, yeah, that upper class like accent yeah. but what that comes out of their mouths is the opposite <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so at the house margo is getting fitted for her dress and we get this dressmaker who kind of feels like a, a coded gay stereotype yeah, very much you know what i'm not i'm just not gonna touch that luckily i think he's just in that one scene yeah but there there is that hussy white line that i, I feel like is a, a great joke that is one of my one of my favorite jokes in this episode where he's like serious that like we dressmakers have a very strict code so I need to know do you deserve to wear virginal white? Yes. Um except for the gloves. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, that is so a good. wonderful joke and it's like man they got away with that was like interesting they got away with that cuz shit was weird in the 90s but yeah. <laughs> but it was great. I guess it was just coded enough that yeah yeah i also every time i think of it also reminded me of the simpsons joke millhouse doesn't count when they're talking about wearing white at lisa's wedding millhouse oh. doesn't count <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so, I, I there's a lot of moments where you're like hey i don't know if it's recycle is the right word but there's like oh this joke was very much in the critic before it was in the simpsons or around the same time as the same joke was in the simpsons oh see i never considered like which one came first but i definitely noted that yeah they do have a lot of similar jokes sometimes like yeah. es- especially just comparing jay to like homer simpson yeah the way that weight is always a punchline and yeah there is actually there is one line it's it's i think it's in the season two of the critic that is directly used in the the simpsons it's when they're doing the graduate parody and franklin's character goes they call them fingers but i've never seen them thing which is that, that oh. is a line in the critic in like 1995 that was later used in like 2002 in the simpsons episodes and like when they're just in the pot episode of the simpsons oh god i remember that wow yeah I remember that. I've watched the show a lot. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Cool. So uh, we also meet um, the uh, boy that Eleanor has picked out to uh, take Margot to the dance, Reeve Winthrop the 14th. Tell me, Reeve, what's seven times eight? Thirteen. Uh, sharp as a tack. <laughs> An inbred uh, British doofus, I guess, that, yeah, I guess they're... Uh, you know, poking fun at, I guess, like the British royal family or just like... Just general royal inbreeding. Yeah. It reminds me, this is a very specific reference, uh, technically 90s, but not at all related. But it's the graphic novel Preacher. They had a character that was like the bloodline of Christ that they kept preserving through like 2,000 years. And then so they didn't want to taint it. So they kept inbreeding from Jesus's ancestors for 2,000 years. And he comes out as this like horribly, like mentally challenged, like mutated mess. But he's the only, but he's the future 
who will redeem the earth. And so there, that's like, so it just reminded <laughs> me of that a little bit in terms of like, how inbred are you? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I haven't read preacher. I've read very few graphic novels, but yeah. Uh, but that's funny, funny that the descendant of Jesus becomes so inbred that he's like, yeah, barely the, functional as a human. Yeah, basically. And they, they, in the show preacher, they, they, did that too but it was just such like a reveal and the when i read the i didn't read many graphic novels either in high school but that was one of the ones i read and that stayed with me forever <laughs> nice um and then uh there's a great line when um like eleanor is talking to franklin i was just going to give you some rubber bands to play with but if you want to you can come oh i could have had rubber bands favorite franklin line of the episode right yeah. there uh so great yeah well why don't we skip ahead i guess yeah. to the actual dance um we get so it's at a natural history museum the natural history museum in new york right yeah is it, it's just called the the natural history it's museum the, i think it's the national it's the it's like the national museum of history or something like that but you just in new york it's just the natural history museum that's what you call it okay uh, yeah yeah my um my senior prom was at the skirball museum here in la yeah I, I don't know why museums are such popular venues for dances I don't either. I don't. This is, it's more for like galas. I think it's a gala. Mm. This is more. This is there's dancing, but this is like debutantes are probably less considered a more gala than dance. That's kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. So, but there were like there's always like receptions there, like fundraisers and shit like that. Like that's but natural history. It's a lot of that's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but Natural History Museum could fear it i think it would less likely be a debutante ball place to do that in new york but for setting up jokes which is there's a couple yeah. of great jokes with jay is the caveman and yeah. franklin talking to the penguins and stuff like that which are two quality uh yeah. <laughs> having a board meeting with the penguins and not realizing they're penguins as a franklin it's a great flight and franklin moment yeah and, and really what this show does well is just those really quick like one line just like throwaway jokes yeah like years before like family guy did it yeah yeah so once we're at the ball uh jay meets a woman who immediately seems very interested in him Mm -hmm. uh which is also kind of a recurring pattern in this show jay somehow being able to hook up with women that are like way more attractive than him i love eleanor's line i just hope she sleeps with him before she kills him (laughs) yeah like (laughs) comparing her to a black widow i guess or a uh like a praying mantis or the woman from the misery episode <laughs> right like two episodes earlier <laughs> it's not it's right. not an unprecedented thing for his character even in the fifth episode of the show <laughs> that's true but yeah it felt like we have that same sort of plot in the pilot as well of, of jay you know briefly dating a, a way more attractive woman before she inevitably right. leaves him like it almost feels like they were kind of establishing like a, a girlfriend of the week sort of pattern almost yeah um i i think that was something i mean like that was going around like how attractive was george costanza but he had a girlfriend of the week situation exactly like yeah it's a very seinfeld kind of thing or like yeah. i guess maybe it was just like a 90s sitcom thing in general i think so 
Yeah. Though so th- though they do even in that they f- always find ways to make jokes about how fucking weird and like weird the pe- people who are attracted to JR like there's a moment yeah. moment in uh I think it's an earlier episode where he's reading a love letter he receives and he's like I I mean you may mention this in a previous episode but it's like I am currently convicted and he just throws in the pile yeah. of <laughs> love letters yeah. from ex- from cons and like yeah that's like so even in this world that he somehow gets woman they establish that he's like a weird kink of a human being yeah. in a lot of ways <laughs> i mean were the 90s just a hornier decade than today well that may change given the circumstances of today <laughs> yeah. but i think there was more of a sense that to the credit of now that men could somehow land women through means that were probably not either realistic or great for women um oh if i'm intelligent that's enough which is i mean intelligence is good but i don't know if that's enough you know yeah like if you grew up in the 90s and you watched a lot of rom-coms or just any sort of love story in the 90s you would definitely come away with the impression that like women were the prize or like the goal that like you put in the work and you're rewarded with a woman it was a level up in a video game to get a woman like yeah <laughs> literally in the sims which i guess is not 90s but literally it's like oh new woman unlocked like <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah or like you know the classic mario rescuing the princess yeah. or anything or like culture that culture up to like 2015 <laughs> <Right>. all culture <laughs> give or take a year or two yeah oh somewhere in this um we for skipped over maybe my favorite running gag in the whole show when Jay's trying to get out of going to the debut dump ball. He, he makes up his fake secretary, Ethel. Oh, yes. Oh, Ethel, what's on the docket for next Friday night? That's the night you promised to take me to the Rainbow Room, where we'll dance to the sounds of Skip Martin and his orchestra. It's just John Lovitz doing a falsetto secretary voice character. Then it's just Jay talking. It's so fucking weird. And I, yeah. I I love how, like, how did this get on network television? This is the weirdest thing you've ever seen. Just Jay talking to his made-up high-pitched falsetto secretary. It's, I love it. And it's just so, like, this is, like, literally a crazy person doing a crazy person thing on television. Jay will occasionally just have these like flights of fancy where he (laughs) goes off on a crazy tangent or like gets wrapped up in a fantasy world or something. Yeah. But that one, they they did that a few times and it's always, it never doesn't make me burst out laughing when it's just Jay talking to Ethel. Yeah. (laughs) His made up secretary. I'm like, you can afford a secretary. I think he just, a character just (laughs) likes having this Ethel character. Oh Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, so Jay meets this woman in the buffet line. They make plans to go dance under the blue whale later. Um, and then we get this uh, awesome musical number. Uh, or, well, very quickly before that, we learn that, the, uh, that this debutante ball is to benefit people with massive head injuries. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's that was a great. I mean, any joke where you can point out how bullshit rich people's charities are is always good. Yeah, and that kind of pays off in the other very dark joke of this episode, where they're like, "And now our special guests will go back to the massive head injury fun room." And it's just a dark closet. Yeah, they just put them in there and they shut the lights off and it's like, 
My God. I don't know if there's any air holes in that, in that room. (laughs) Well, there's like, there's like one window with like, uh, uh, shades that are cracked open and, and like a street light is shining in through, which just makes it look like so much more squalid. I love that joke. It's like, it, it, that is a punch-up joke, even though they're – and I don't think the laughter comes from, like, the moaning of the people with the head injury. It's just, like, rich people are fucking terrible is the point of that joke. And yeah. it's, it holds up 100% uh, for me. Yeah. But in between these two beats with the uh, people with massive head injuries, we get this musical number that the debutantes sing, I Think I'm Going Out of My Head. I, I was actually taken aback by just how well produced the music was. Yeah. Like it sounds so good. It was still Alf Clauston who did. I looked, I saw in the credits that Alf Clauston who did all the Simpsons music also did the music for the critic. Um, and the theme for the critic was composed by Hans Zimmer, which is yeah. crazy to me. Like <laughs> I that's know. insane. Um, <laughs> like this yeah. was after Crimson Tide. Like yeah. how could they afford him? I don't know. It was ABC money. That's yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> But, um, but yeah, no, it was like it, they had music, like Simpsons music was always very well produced and it was mainly Alf Clausen. And so they had him do that too. So it's just like always spot on with that. So we get to this moment where, um, Margo makes this grand speech where she's going to rail against the, uh, you know, the whole idea of debutante balls. Uh, she says it makes her sick, that it's a pointless waste of money. Um, though I thought we were, we would get maybe some sort of, feminist angle because earlier in the episode she says they're sexist but then nothing about that in this speech that she gives here it's just that they're offensive she has there's no real feminism in that speech i mean i guess the feminism is in the gesture of giving a speech decrying it but nothing specifically is addressed yeah like they really don't get into how patriarchal it is or anything like that so yeah i mean I guess, you know, the critic in general, I think, is not great as far as, like, female characters and, like, feminist plots and stuff are concerned. This is probably the most feminist the show ever gets. Yeah, there's, like, a couple of moments. Like, I like when they develop Doris, there's a couple of moments where you're like, oh, shit, um, but not really. Um, the second season when they have the love interest in the in the daughter like they, yeah that, alice that was, alice that was clearly introduced to like make him a human being more than like he wasn't in the first season but it, it never it, and it, it was like i feel like she was a good character but she was still like a character serving in the interest of the male character yeah um although i do really love her character she yeah. really i think makes the show better yeah i agree yeah um so after Margot gives this speech, uh, two guards, Betty and Veronica, <laughs> i.e. just like, you know, giant bodyguard men in dresses. The, the Nixon thugs. Yeah, they're just Nixon. Th- what's uh, what, what were Nixon thugs? They were that, but in dresses. Yeah. Or just two mob goons <laughs> or whatever. They take her off stage and, uh, you know, Jay says that she uh, he liked the speech and, and all this, but like. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like Margot won or that she really accomplished anything in the end, which is... And then she, like, feels bad that no boys wanted to dance with her still, too. And then- yeah, that's weird, too. And the the end of her arc is that 
the the limo driver says, oh, guess what? I'm also a bartender. I was wondering, is that a Roadhouse reference? I was thinking... I, yeah, I don't know. The character had like a Swayze look, so I was wondering if it was like technically... A, I'm wondering if it was a Roadhouse reference. I don't think it was, but I was just like... I don't know, because Patrick Swayze was not a bartender in that movie. Yeah, I know, but it was just like at a bar. I felt like it was some kind of... I was like, is that a Swayze thing? I don't know. It, I don't know. It it just felt like a very weird end to that arc. Yeah. It was just she gets to dance with a, a guy who turns out to be cool because yeah. he has long hair and is a bartender. There were so many Brooklyn accents in that movie. In the, in the, sorry, in this show. And that was like a slick New York Brooklyn accent. I feel like that had to have been a parody of something. I just don't know what it was a parody of specifically. Yeah, I don't know. Because even if it was Roadhouse, I mean, Roadhouse was like in the 80s. So... Yeah, it definitely felt like I am missing the thing you're parodying here. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't get it. Or it just could have been a choice. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, there's a joke we I want to go back to because I, I, it's sort of apropos in terms of what's come out in culture lately, um, where he, the reason the Barney, the, the woman is attracted to him, I'll spoil it, is, oh, yes. <laughs> is that she is the hippo the person behind the hippo costume and uh earlier in the episode jay is with his son and goes to see a book reading of oh right the hippo and calls her out gives her this whole you're the worst thing about culture monologue you are an insipid walking commercial and your cereal turned my urine pink well you have to eat six bowls for that to happen Yes, yes, and a gallon of chocolate milk. But that's not the point. Which is why the hippo lady ends up being attracted to him. Sure, why not? Th that feels very, uh, like, um, doesn't that happen in the newsroom a bunch? Yeah. <laughs> like uh, Jeff Newsroom uh, chews out some woman who then sleeps with him. Yeah. I don't know. I I haven't actually watched the newsroom, but I... Jeff, his name is Jeff Newsroom. Yeah. That is his character's <laughs> name. Um, that is his... Christian name. Um, but um, there, there's also a line in that where it goes, this is like the time you cold cock Mr. Rogers, which I, which is a show oh, yeah. that made me <laughs> so hard. Yeah. The, yeah. The crowd of kids that have come to see Humphrey and his in-store appearance turn on Jay and Marty and yeah. Yeah. Bum rush them. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, apparently Jay just has a history with uh, uh, antagonizing Violence of beloved children's yeah. <laughs> entertainment figures. Yeah. So then, yeah, we do get that scene where it's revealed that this woman that Jay has been flirting with all night and is about to sleep with what is the woman inside the Humphrey suit. Also a weird end to the B plot because, like, the, the, the way we're introduced to Humphrey is that he's stealing Jay's ratings and, like, they sleep together, and then that doesn't really solve the problem. No, but actually, in the next episode, I was because I was watching a few episodes today, and which is not hard for me to do. But um, in the next episode, Jay's ratings plummet so much that he gets canceled. So, it's, right, it did kind of set up the next episode, which is that Jay's job is in jeopardy and his ratings are falling. 
Yeah. So it didn't answer that, but it did kind of set up the next episode. It's hard to think of like Simpsons or critic episodes, like coming in sequence. Like it's, right. it's, you don't think of them that often. I'm like, Oh, if you're establishing that Jay's show gets shitty ratings, I'm okay with that B plot, not really going anywhere. Cause it did establish that he is getting shitty ratings. So. Yeah. And the Humphrey character will actually come back uh, yeah. in the series. Yeah. So I think that, just about brings us to the end of the episode. The last thing we get is this weird coda where Jay comes out and addresses the audience directly. Yes. There's this weird little coda where Jay comes out and he says, please do not give away the horrifying twist in this episode, which uh, I guess he's referring to the fact that the woman is Humphrey the hippo. Or there was some line at the very end of the episode that was there was some like weird moment. Oh, the the limo driver says he once drove uh, some obscure actor who is dead oh, now. Oh, James Coco. James yeah, Coco. James Co- Do you know who James Coco is? I don't know, but I also know they shot on him in The Simpsons too, in the Treehouse of Horror episode where Homer goes to hell, um, and he, they feed him, force feed him donuts, and he loves it. Uh, they say James Coco went mad after five minutes. Like that's. <laughs> So, okay. so that he was like a. I looked him up, like at some point because I was like, oh, they did joke about him twice. He was just like a fat guy in movies in the '80s, or maybe like a TV okay. show. He was like famous for that. Yeah, that's sadly becoming another trend on this show is me not doing research. <laughs> yeah. So then the very last moment of this episode, uh, Duke Phillips comes back out, and they repeat the Pillsbury Doughboy joke. Yes. Good callback. <laughs> yes. Because they only did it four times the first time. So you need yeah. to do it at least one more time. Yeah. It was one of those, this show was also the master of like, let's repeat a joke until it stops being funny and then it's funny again. Yeah. Like that trope in comedy, I feel like this show was way ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. We're going to get that later in another episode oh, where they yeah. do. I think uh, I know the Franklin moment oh i was not thinking of the franklin moment i was thinking of when they do the uh the jfk movie parody oh yeah the jfk movie parody <laughs> with like they say like two hours of additional footage <laughs> back <laughs> into the left yeah just kevin costner repeating that for two hours <laughs> no i was thinking and i don't want to spoil future episodes but the moment when it's a home improvement parody and franklin's talking to wilson who's just a scarecrow instead of a human being and uh he's there's a bird on it it says who my wife eleanor who my wife and it just goes on <laughs> until it can't go on anymore like that show is the master of repeating a joke until it annoyingly until it got even funnier than it was the first time so that brings us to the end credits we get the uh running gag at the very end where the um the uh, usher comes in yeah. and uh, Jay says, get away, zit face. Which is my least favorite of all the post-credit gags they have. Yeah, it, that's also um, maybe the first time it's repeated because that was used in the pilot episode. Yeah, my favorite one is, sir, the movie's over, but I have nowhere to go. That's <laughs> yeah. by far my favorite <laughs> of all of them. Though I'm a little disappointed they didn't come up with a unique one for each episode. Oh, it's kind of, I think they're kind of going for like catch gags where the couch gags would repeat every so often in the Simpsons. But for a long time, there were different couch gags and like, yeah. and Bart wrote something different on the chalkboard every episode. Yeah. And they do in the intro, the mess, the phone call he gets when he starts yeah. is always great. That joke's always good. This one was like, I get one of the weaker ones where Doris is at the morgue and she has to convince 
the the corner that she's not dead, which is like, yeah. all right. But, but there's <laughs> like they joke about her age the same way they joke about joke uh, Jay's weight. Wait, my favorite one though is um, it's when Jay the picks the phone and it's Jay's voice and it says, "Jay, this is your inner child. I just escaped and robbed a liquor store." I've repeated <laughs> that line so many times. Like you wake up drunk, you're like, "What did I do last night? I robbed liquor store." <laughs> Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Was there anything we missed or any anything else from this episode you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, except I may be confusing because once I watch one episode of the show, I tend to watch five. So I think mm-hmm. that hap- I will watch one episode, then I watch like three or four more afterwards. So uh, I'm like, I don't want to give away a joke from another episode because I'm like... I think this was in it because all I'm going to say is that I've lived in LA now almost seven years. Um, and the best thing I've seen in all these seven years was Maurice LaMarche live doing his Orson Welles peas at. Oh, like, hell yeah. I, got a, I was at a Simpsons trivia thing at the now departed meltdown. Um, and he came to give a speech and someone asked, Hey, can you do frozen peas? And he did it. And I <laughs> died. Oh, uh, that's great. It was to me that is like this is why I moved to LA because shit like this can happen. <laughs> yes. So it's a man doing an impression of a man doing a peas hat, and it's <laughs> the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Ah, uh, that's amazing. Um, my favorite thing that maybe ever happened at Meltdown that I, okay, I wasn't there for this, but I did see a video of it. They had a uh, a Mister Show art show where, you know, a bunch of, like, paintings and stuff based on, like, Mr. Show yeah. s- sketches and characters. And someone recreated the um, the the Thimble collection from the yeah, Mount Everest sketch. Yes, and then people <laughs> toppled over it. <laughs> Jay Johnston himself toppled over it. <laughs> I was hoping, as soon as you said the art thing, I'm like, please tell me they built yeah. that. <laughs> yes. So I'm very happy. Yeah, that's, the, that's- the best possible thing happened. <laughs> I'm like, please tell me that. Yes, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Cool. So uh, I guess that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Ethan, anything you want to plug? Who knows what is a thing anymore? Um, I guess follow me at on Twitter and Instagram at Ethan Stan Comedy. Um, You can also follow my sketch team. We still are releasing videos and we're doing some other things. what the, we have been doing live shows monthly. Obviously, that's not the case now, but we're still releasing content. We're start, we're figuring out the next step, but it's Night Church. You can find us on all platforms at Hail Night Church. Very funny team. Um, so that is, that is there. We love each other very much, and whatever form our team takes in the future, we're hoping it will be wonderful. Um, and you can find all our content and just say nice things about us, which is good for our ego, if nothing else. <laughs> yes, I've known a lot of the guys on Night Church for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You are all awesome, very funny people. We also did a Simpsons sketch on our team. I don't know if you saw that one. Um, it was because uh, Vanessa Gritton, who's on our team, does a perfect Bart Simpson voice. And it's uncanny how perfect her voice is for that. And so we just did the why you little choke thing. And then there was a little neck snap. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> go. No, 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 no. Written by Dane Bowling. So that was we've uh, done Simpsons parody there as well. So, yes. Awesome. Uh, cool. So, yeah, definitely check out uh, Night Church uh, on all the socials. 
and uh, find Ethan on all the socials because he's also a very funny man. Uh, Ethan, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. And we will see you guys next time for the next episode of It Stinks. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Stinks, the critic podcast. I'm your host, Brian Rubinow. Our theme song is by Brandon Beck. You can email the podcast at itstinkspod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at itstinkspod. 